From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast devoted to the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders in the 3D printing industry. So then in the 2000s and up until that point, so I would say like 2000 up through like 10, 11, 12, the machine tool builders and machine community really went hard to improve the technology, right? The lasers were getting better. There were more machine manufacturers coming into the space. And then right around that time, and that was, again, that was like when America Makes was getting founded, all these different things. It was like, well, the machines got good enough that the materials development community got interested again. That was Ed Herderick. Dr. Herderick is the director of additive at the Ohio State University Center for Design and Manufacturing Excellence. He previously worked for GE as global sales leader for portable NDT at GE Inspection Technologies and was the additive technologies leader for GE corporate supply chain and operations. He has also served as director of R&D at an additive startup called RPNM and was the director of additive manufacturing consortium operated by EWI. He served as an AAS Congressional Fellow in the Office of Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, and he received his PhD in Material Science and Engineering from The Ohio State University. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany.com and subscribe to the podcast. Or you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcast, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. All right, Ed, thank you so much for joining the episode today. I think we're going to have a, a wide-ranging conversation. So. I like to start with everyone kind of um, you're sitting in Columbus now, but kind of where were you born? Where did you kind of grow up and, and what was the early days of, of you getting on a path towards where you're, where you are now? Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Uh, super excited to be here. So uh, I was born and raised in central Ohio um, in a suburb of Columbus called Pickerington. Uh, actually I, I'm Ohio state through and through. So I was actually born at Ohio state med center. Uh, so is my brother, dad, uncle. It's really been a surreal experience for me to come back to my alma mater. Um, so, so I went to Ohio. So I grew up in central Ohio, always knew I wanted to be an engineer. I went to Ohio State and then actually my dad worked at Ohio State for 30 years. And now my office is on the floor above where he had his office uh, for most of his career. Um, so, so anyhow, yeah, born and raised central Ohio, Ohio State through and through. Um, always was into engineering, aerospace, airplanes, all that stuff as a kid. And, um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was natural to, to come to my, uh, home state university right down the street, study material science engineering and, and yeah, set me on the path to, to where I am today. Were you around a lot of manufacturing and kind of industry as you were growing up in central Ohio? I mean, like. Uh, that was, I mean, big part of the overall economy, right? Is kind of making things, building things, um, certainly in the last few decades. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it was interesting for me growing up. Um, so my, uh, my mom and dad both are into software stuff and a lot of like biomedical engineering. So it's like, I can remember coming in on the weekends. It's like back in the day when you had these like mainframe computers and stuff. And it's like, well, my dad would be running experiments over the weekend and I would be playing around on these like, I mean, old school, but state of the art at the time, uh, Silicon graphics, super high power computers. They had like the flight simulator stuff and like some of these original games and then um, going up and visiting the Cleveland clinic and meeting some of their biomedical device folks. So that was kind of how it, it, it's interesting. Cause now I'm kind of in this like heavy manufacturing metallurgy, that kind of stuff. So I got exposed to a lot of, yeah, the early, um, early software stuff and a lot of biomedical devices and then sort of leverage that into where I am today. And so I've talked to some of your uh, fellow OSU CDME uh, colleagues, and I learned that OSU has a welding kind of degree program where you, you said material science. So were you material science or welding? What was your, your focus when you went to school? Yeah, so um, my my specialty was material science and engineering uh, all the way through. So I did bachelor's, master's, PhD. Um, interestingly enough, actually, so for my PhD work, I was actually doing ceramic engineering, 
um, functional oxides and things like that. So I actually, I mean, so again, because we have this really strong welding engineering program, really strong casting, forging, physical metallurgy, I got exposure to all that stuff, but I didn't really do any additive in school. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I learned the tools of material science, uh, structure of materials, characterization, um, modeling, sort of physical processes, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I actually didn't do any additive uh, all throughout my schooling uh, in college. Was there anything particular that drew you to material science? Was it like, did you like some of the medical stuff that you'd seen your parents do? Was it something else? So actually, uh, when I was in high school, um, I came on a tour. They had an open house for local high school students. And um, it was really great to see all the, I, I didn't really know what material science is. I mean, how do you know this stuff like yeah. in high school? But hearing people describe some of these things like, okay, well, like you design a rocket nozzle. It's like, okay, how do you design materials that are going to make that rocket nozzle? This is sort of an aha moment. The thing that I remember really clearly is um, there was a professor that did a demonstration with bulk metallic glass. So they had, uh, it, which is super elastic. So they had this demonstration where they had a steel ball bearing and they would drop it on a regular piece of steel. And it, you know, it bounced a little bit, but it doesn't really bounce. And then they had this disc of this, and, and this was a long time ago, this was over 20 years ago. So it was like this uh, early stage bulk metallic glass and you would drop the ball bearing on it and it would bounce like a rubber ball. I mean, it would just, and I was like, whoa, like that. I mean, it really piqued my interest because again, I had never thought about it in terms of, you, you know, I was always interested in engineering. I sort of thought about it. Now I would call it like product design, right? Or things like that. But the fact that you can have, you know, a magic disc of metal and like, how do you make that unobtainium into something that, you know, literally changed the world, right? And, and at the time, they were trying to do golf clubs and different things. Now they're doing, you know, BMG, they're doing these uh, tires on the Mars rover and some of this wild stuff. It's like, I mean, that's all materials driven. So I was hooked. So it was yeah. like high school, tour of the department. I was like, this sounds pretty sweet. Um, and I signed up and holy cow, like I just, I, 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 that was my major all the way through. And it's been a great career so far. And uh, I think we'll continue to be. And what, what was your, did you have a plan kind of as you kind of were going master's, PhD kind of graduate work? Did you want to stay in the academic realm? Did you want to teach? Do you want to be, go kind of the professor track versus, or did you, were you interested in engineering or in um, like industri industry and, and working at a company? So I was always interested in this intersection between business and technology Um and, and it's funny because now I sort of like have an idea of what that means. Like at the time, I didn't really know what that meant. Um, but actually, so after I got my PhD, I um, was a congressional fellow. So I worked on Capitol Hill as an advisor to one of um, Ohio's senators where um, it was like for a year, I was in the D.C. office and was working with legislation, meeting with constituents, writing speeches, doing all that stuff. And um, it's interesting. So, so that was really sort of a great early career experience for me to learn the, the policy side of things. Um, but also opened my eyes up because, again, a lot of this industrial policy stuff, there's a lot of interactions with the government. So even though I was working in government, um, it was really meeting with the business people and the local constituents that got me really excited. And that's sort of that's what really launched that part of my career in terms of this business and technology sort of intersection. Was, and so what part of like, how were you kind of leveraging some of your materials background, kind of your technical background with, with that particular role? Like I'm, I'm curious to see how, or hear more about the, like what's the nature of some of those conversations. So you're having conversations with small businesses like, Hey, like we need, uh, we need these resources or like, how do we work with the DOD to like, we have this technology, like what, what was the nature of some of the, the interactions there? Yeah. Well, okay. So it's like constituents are coming in. So, so that could be, uh, you know, senior executives from uh, an Ohio company that could be local entrepreneurs and they're coming in and saying, Hey, key national need, uh, we need critical materials like rare earth elements, or we need, you know, titanium 
manufacturing, which is actually really big in Ohio, believe it or not, um, for defense and other supply chains. And it's sort of like translating that in terms of priorities for the policymakers and, and political appointees and elected representatives in terms of like, okay, like what does this mean in terms of economic development and competitiveness? Because, you know, if you don't have a technically trained engineer in there to translate it, you know, I mean, obviously you can explain it as a layperson, but, um, you know, one of the things that I'm really proud of that, that we helped bring together was a bipartisan Department of Energy uh, program on offshore wind turbines. And it's like, okay, so like that all sounds good. People can support wind turbines and all that, but it's like, okay, there's the whole supply chain discussion. Where are you going to make things? And what are the barriers in terms of specific materials um, and manufacturing, right? And, and the offshore wind turbines are huge, right? So it's like huge foundation, huge blades, shipping them around. Like there's a lot of technical uh, content there in terms of making good policy. For sure. And I, I mean, you start to see kind of the different layers too, right? Like you have to sell a very high level story of like whether it's wind turbines or something like that, people can kind of understand what it is in, in two sentences, but all the things that kind of come down and flow to that with, okay, who's going to make them? How do you get all the materials is like that level of detail. Like it's, it's immense for, for any sort of policy decision I'm imagining, not to mention well, yeah, just and- like the, the different different stakeholders on each side of it. Right. Yeah. And, and I'd still like to think that we can do like science driven or or economically driven policy. Um, And, and so actually at that time we were in the early stages of discussing the manufacturing Institute. So this was 2009, 2010. So that was really, I, I didn't plan it that way, but it was like, we were talking about the policies that eventually became the, legislation and the programs through the um, different uh, White House administrations in order to build the manufacturing institutes. So it was like, okay, like I was like working on the policy side and then came out and that now, you know, 10 years on have been doing all this work with America Makes and the other groups. It's like, well, that kind of, I didn't know it at the time, but that that turned out into a really nice sort of thread of experience from from one side of the policy development into actually executing that mission. And so around this time where you, you were wrapping up or you were kind of done with your PhD program or were you in kind of doing this fellowship program, what was kind of the next next transition in your career? Yeah, so, so I finished my PhD in 2009. Um, I was in Washington for a year for this fellowship. And then I came back to Columbus and took a role at the Edison Welding Institute, EWI. Um, which is where I first got into additive. And so for those who may not be aware of EWI, can you explain, because it's kind of a unique entity, right? It's a, somewhat of a nonprofit, somewhat of a, kind of does a lot of research and, and different sorts of not only additive projects, but welding projects in general. Yeah, so it's a nonprofit research institute based in Columbus, Ohio. They have a couple of other sites across the country, including Buffalo, New York, um, I, I sort of think about it. It's kind of like, if you ever watch Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, it's like, you know, Rick Moranis is always like inventing at this like research institute. Well, that's kind of what EWI is, but for manufacturing, right? So they have a big lab, you know, um, now it's filled with additive equipment at the time we were sort of building that up. Um, but you go out into the high bay and it's, it's filled with any kind of welding technology. Uh, you think of metal, sheet metal forming, all that stuff. And working with both government and commercial partners, we're like inventing new technology. So it's not at a university, it's at this, you know, private research institute think tank. Um, but man, what a great place to start a career. Uh, it was uh, super fun. And, and interestingly, actually, so I got linked up with them. And um, it, it's funny now, because like, I'm still working with people that I met there. So the people that brought me in, uh, Nate Ames, who was my hiring manager, is now the executive director at CDME. So that sort of came full circle. And then another good friend of mine, um, Kimberly Gibson, who's now at America Makes, one of the co-founders of IC3D. So it was sort of Nate and Kimberly that brought me in and, and we were all colleagues together at EWI 
um, building up their programs uh, back then over 10 years ago. So what was your kind of day-to-day job like kind of uh, first, first job after you, you finish your PhD, your kind of like first technical job. So what, what were you doing on a daily basis? Yeah. So I was in the materials group. So like there were some projects that were already established um, that I was working on. And then um, as I was there for more time, then it would be my responsibility to go out and like come up with an idea and then go be writing proposals again, either to government solicitations or to commercial partners to fund projects and develop technology. So um, it's really, it's, so, so that's how I got into additive was at EWI, which really makes a lot of sense because they're, they're the welding experts. And a lot of this additive stuff, especially metal is around uh, sort of welding technology. And so actually the way I got into additive, it was, it had to have been like the first or second week I was at EWI. And, and again, it's like one of these seminal moments in my career. Um, I remember, so they had this like PA system where they would like page you. And I was like new to the company. I'm sitting there typing away, whatever, reading papers. And, um, and I got a page over the pager system, you know, Ed Herter come to a conference room 100 or whatever. I go down there and um, two, two great folks, uh, uh, great friends, uh, Beth Jackson, who's a program manager, um, still there, and Ian Harris, um, who was the sort of founding director of the Additive Manufacturing Consortium for EWI. And they go, hey, we have funding from our membership base in the state of Ohio. Um, we have a project to go write a state-of-the-art review of additive manufacturing. This is in 2010. And, and it's like, I, at the time, I didn't know anything about additive. Um, but it was like this perfect project to launch a career because I literally had funding for six months to go interview all the companies, talk to all these big programs around the world, and, and read papers and, you know, develop some ideas around the technology and then write a nice report for the membership. And, and that was how I launched my additive career and, and made all these friends in the industry and sort of never looked back. Um, so, so that was kind of maybe like an analyst role, but there was a lot of technology to it too, where like we actually physically had equipment in the lab or doing recipe development, materials development, sensor development, um, all those different things, um, sort of in a hands-on actually in the lab as well. So with that report, I mean, do you remember anything? What was your kind of big takeaway from, from doing all that research? Like how has that oh, yeah. changed from well, your, your perspective in, did you make any predictions that have come true since, uh, since writing that? Yeah, well, it's funny. And then, and then I have another anecdote from my next stop uh, that we could get to, but it was like, um, I remember thinking at the time that, man, there's a lot of players in this space. Like, how am I ever going to really get into additive and make a difference? Because there's like a lot of smart people and they sort of seem like they got to figure it out, right? Like we knew there were a lot of problems and there was a lot of, um, you know, 10 years ago, there were a lot of questions around quality. Like, were we ever going to be able to get fully dense metal parts that would be consistent and, you know, stable process and certifiable by regulatory bodies? So a lot of those questions have been answered. Um, you know, the other thing back in the day, it was like, there really weren't that many materials, right? So it was like, okay, um, th- there were three or four, you know, 316 stainless steel, cobalt chrome, some TIE 64, some nickel work, but it wasn't the whole sort of spectrum of materials we have today. Um, so that's kind of what struck me. Um, you know, the interesting thing for me looking back on it is additives got, and I'm talking industrial additive, maybe not exclusively metals, because I have done a lot of polymers, but I think the themes stick together. It's like, well, at that time, um, there had been, so, so, so looking back in the 90s, the materials community got really into additive and really excited, but the equipment wasn't good enough to make good materials. So the, the materials development community kind of walked away from it. So then in the 2000s and up until that point, so I would say like 2000 up through like 10, 11, 12, the machine tool builders and machine community really went hard to improve the technology, right? The lasers were getting better. There were more machine manufacturers coming into the space. And then right around that time, and that was, again, that was like when America Makes was getting founded, all these different things. It was like, well, the machines got good enough 
that the materials development community got interested again. So it was right sort of at that, that point. So like when I wrote the report, it was, again, some of these themes were like, okay, looks great. People are trying to find applications. I think all the like, the, the vision was there, right? Custom medical devices, you know, aerospace. Although maybe there was skepticism, right? I mean, there were a lot of aerospace people that are like, this is never, this is never gonna work. Additive, it's never gonna happen. And then, so then I wrote this report in like, whatever, 2010, 2013. And, and it, it's just these seminal moments, like I'll never forget in my career. And then GE Aviation bought Morris Technologies. And it was like, oh, brother, like, here it comes. Like, here's the way. Like, I remember driving home from EWI. And it was just like my phone ringing off the hook of like, because, you know, Morris was really the only game in town. I mean, back in that, it was like Morris Technologies partnered with EOS. And that was it. And so when they got acquired, that took a lot of the capability off the market. Or, or captured it for one OEM, and boy, that was a that was a market signal where things really started to grow for for everyone. Yeah. That's awesome. And so, what was the next step after EWI, or how long did you stay stay there? Um, I was there for three years. So ultimately, I ended up um, leaving the additive manufacturing consortium, and sort of uh, from my predecessor Ian Harris, who got it founded, working with Ian. Um, there are some really, really great colleagues there. Uh, probably don't have time to name them all, but it was like, so Sean Kelly, who's now at Ehrlichon, was one of my partners in crime there. So Sean and I had a lot of fun um, developing the AMC, writing these proposals, developing technology. Uh, Brian Bishop, who's also still in the industry. Um, Mark Norfolk, who leads Fabrisonic. There's like tons of great people. Actually, one of the most bittersweet things was actually we... Uh, we when we were at EWI, we wrote a proposal to NIST, and we actually developed the first scratch-built open test bed uh, printer. And it was like literally the day of my going away party at the pub. We found out we won that huge grant. So I'm really proud. The team really did a great job executing that. But so it was like, okay. So after that, I left and I went to a startup. Um, in Avon Lake, Ohio, uh, called RP Plus M, Rapid Prototype Plus Manufacturing, um, to help build out their business. So I took a job there as director of R&D. And, um, and so they, I got to know them. They were um, members of the AMC consortium. They had been doing a lot of work with America Makes, and they were just starting to build out um, their metal capability at the time. So I went up there. They got an EOS M280. They had the first... Uh, X1 M flex outside of X1. So it was serial number one. And we were doing things again, it's funny how this stuff comes around because it was like, okay, so we were doing um, tungsten collimators uh, using binder jetting, which came back around. Um, one of our big programs there are P plus M, which is, uh, you know, proud to have contributed. They're, they're doing a great job still going. They did um, design allowables for all 9085 on the Stratasys 900. And now they've taken that through to production. Um, you know, it was a startup environment and it, and it was an incredible team, still is an incredible team there. Um, a lot of colleagues there have, have, you know, gone on and taken lots of different jobs across the industry. So, um, but yeah, so it was EWI to RP plus M. Um, and then I was uh, there for a little while and then I uh, took my job at GE. Okay. So you went from kind of making the transition from academia and the PhD kind of research institute, small company, then the biggest company in the world or one of the, the biggest companies in the world. In the world. Yep. <laughs> so what was the, what was the appeal? I mean, taking a step back, like, did you have kind of a, what was your guiding light or guiding principles as you kind of switch roles? Was it kind of following technical interest or like, Hey, this sounds really interesting. Was it the job role or kind of the position of the, like what the company was doing, like how did you, how were you weighing some of these decisions as you kind of made transitions in your career? Yeah. I mean, I just was trying to do stuff that sounded awesome. I mean, I was, I was having a great time at EWI and RP plus M like those are both great companies. And then it was like, okay, GE wanted to build up their Pittsburgh CADA facility um, and they needed an additive person to come in and sort of help lead some of those activities and they were like, like, like Mike, I like pinch myself. They're like, oh, hey, like, 
do you want to come help? I mean, it was a big team. It wasn't just me, right? It was a great team of people, but like, hey, uh, come work with GE Global Research. I got to work with all the major business units. You know, Greg Morris was my dogged line manager. It was like, like, I couldn't say no. Like, it was like, okay, come in and help us build out our additive program with all these incredible people. You know, there's like all the folks at GE Aviation and GE Power and Healthcare that were driving it. You know, one of our early wins was actually with the locomotive folks, GE uh, Transportation up in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, we brought in we brought in the X1 large format sand printing for the first time to GE. Helped to develop their uh, binder jetting portfolio in the early, early days uh, with GE Global Research and some of the folks there. You know, I got to travel around to see the additive shops at all of the GE business units and all the suppliers um, man, I have a lot of great, great memories from my time at GE and, uh, oh, I'm like, okay, like we'll get what to even pick. I mean, so, so it was really fun. So I was working with all the sort of business leaders that were doing the additive stuff. So for two years in a row, it was like, we did these global additive fly-ins. So I got to help sort of MC the global additive fly-in. Um, we had one up in Waukesha, Wisconsin, which was the GE healthcare headquarters. Um, so that would have been in 2015. And then, and then GE additive was just beginning to form. And that, and it was just about the time when they announced the acquisitions of concept laser and RCAM. We had another big summit and opening, um, at the CAGA facility in Pittsburgh, um, yeah, I was, I was just like the dog that caught the bus, you know, it was like, I, I don't know that I really thought about it too much. I mean, like I said, I was, had great colleagues at every stop I've been at. It was like the opportunity to go help GE build out their program. Uh, I mean, yeah. And what's like, so a big company like GE as they, I mean, they're, they were on kind of the, the forefront of big investment in, in the technology. How does that, uh, how, how does the idea of a new technology kind of make its way up the validation uh, ladder in a big company like that? Because a, a lot of companies, especially, I mean, you even see it today in manufacturing, right? Um, that, hey, we've heard about additive. We see some of the case studies. It makes sense. But it, it's the risk is still too high for companies to make a big bet like that. Even whether it's GE making billion dollar bets or if it's a small kind of manufacturer where 750 a million dollars for a machine is 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 tough to swallow with with some of that risk. So how did GE create a culture where it was like kind of diving into this new technology? Like how did that kind of manifest itself? Because it seems kind of unique in terms of a lot of the other kind of big companies and just generally how manufacturing works. It's not every day that they make like, these big step changes, it seemed. Well, look, it's a special place. I mean, so so they have been watching the technology almost since the outset. And actually, one of my slides that I always used to love to show was um, from colleagues of mine at GE Global Research, uh, Bill Carter and a few others. They actually wrote a SFF uh, proceedings paper in the early nineties where they were one of the first to do metal sintering, right? Because the original invention at university of Texas was polymer powder bed laser. And then it was really quickly, you know, it was like people that were doing metallurgy were like, Oh, Hey, we can use metal powder. So it's like, you know, so I, I, and I wrote a little review paper a few years ago talking about this. It was, it was like, okay, in the early nineties, GE global research, they took pure iron powder, they centered it to like 30% density. And I love the last line of that paper. They said, I'm trying to remember what year it was. I think it was like 93. And they said, uh, we demonstrated feasibility. This will eventually become a standard approach, right? And, and they were right. So, so, so a company like GE, they had been watching it for years and years in their research enterprise. And then it's like, okay, when do you have the big enough application pull matched with the right level of maturity, the technology to pull it through and invest in something big. 
And so for them, that was the Leap Engine. So Leap Engine, single aisle, 737, Airbus A320. So these are the like Columbus to Orlando, um, you know, Disney World shuttle back and forth 13, 14 times a day, you know, one, two hour flight. So the issue with those uh, flights is the takeoff is when you really stress the engine. That's when you have the highest power, highest temperature, highest stress on the engine. In order to make the engines more efficient, uh, you have to run them at a higher temperature, right? So you, you have this combination of the single aisle jet. Uh, so you have 13, 14, maybe even more takeoffs per day with the higher temperature for higher efficiency. That really stresses the, the, the combustor section and the high pressure turbine of the engine. So they had this drive in the, this would be like late 2000s is when they started developing this stuff for more efficient uh, fuel injectors, right? So this became the fuel nozzle program because you really couldn't make it any other way. There's a really complex internal geometry. The previous technology was a really complex brazing operation that actually you could almost argue is additive where you take these like layers of metal foil and you braze them together in these complex shapes but they couldn't get the heating. So they use the fuel. So the fuel gets warmed up, goes through this heat exchanger and then gets atomized. And that's actually the flame that drives the engine, but they couldn't get enough cooling or efficient enough cooling to have the nozzles survive the duty cycle. They wanted to do all these 13, 14, 15 takeoffs every day. So then it was like, okay, additive had been there on the shelf. And then it was like, okay, here's an application we need this for the performance of this program. And then it sort of pulled through and then was sort of this like co-development and that led to this whole growth. And then once you had an application where it pulled it through, there was the success story. Then, then you had all these knock-on applications. It's like, well, people don't necessarily realize. So, and, and, and this isn't just for GE, but all these gas turbines are, are applicable in power plants. There's a lot of oil and gas applications and just sort of like general industrial processing where you have compressors, things like that. There's a lot of ships that actually are driven by aeroderivative gas turbine engines. So, so that sort of technology for laser powder bed fusion being applicable to brazed fuel injectors, that was much bigger than just one program. Right. And, and brazing is a really challenging technology. So the benchmark, so it was just like, okay, additive had been on the shelf and, and look, all, all these other OEMs in the space have been looking at it. It's like, okay, just sort of slowly marching. And then finally you have this killer app and then, and then you have a big acquisition in the space, like Morris technologies. And then it's like the floodgates open. Right. And then you get like America makes is founded at about the same time big corporate investment. And look, we're seeing the dividends from that now, right? Like all these other partners that we now have uh, in my role at OSU. Um, well, we'll get to that. Okay. I'll take a break. Yeah. No, <laughs> I think that's a, that's a good transition. So was it, so you spent kind of time at this like kind of perfect timeline in the additive space. You're at GE, you get to see all the technologies, there's acquisitions, like there's money flowing kind of what was it, was from GE to OSU or was there another step in the middle? Well, so I had two jobs at GE. So I, I helped to develop their additive strategy with this big team and, and lots of great colleagues. And then um, one of the projects that I was running was for their inspection technologies business because the, so GE has this whole inspection technologies division and they were, they saw an opportunity to say, okay, people are going to make additive parts how are you gonna inspect them, right? So I had done a couple of projects for them. And then I transitioned into a role where I was leading the uh, part of the global sales uh, enterprise for GE inspection technologies to help them commercialize different things, um, in, including additive, although some other businesses as well. Um, so that was sort of the transition. So it was like doing some projects for them in my additive strategy role took on this global sales leader role to help lead part of their business, um, which was uh, an amazing ride and super fun. And, um, and again, it's funny because some of the people I met in that activity um, are now an additive. So it's like, there were a whole bunch of folks. So like um, uh, Juan Mario Gomez, who leads Exact yeah. Metal and Dave Jankowski, 
were colleagues of mine in the inspection business. So it was like actually Juan Mario uh, was big into industrial CT. And so it was like, he sort of taught me CT. I taught him an additive um, and, and some of my other friends in the space, um, AJ Beckler, who led that division. And, and I did some of these projects with, but anyhow, so it was like, okay, so each step, it's like, it's all about the people, right? So it's like, I got to know some of these great people. And, um, and that was a totally awesome job traveling around the world, going into all the regions, um, helping to develop technology in another sort of adjacent space. And, and, and there's some other sort of like super wonky details, but I mentioned I'm in ceramic engineering. Well, it turns out that phased array ultrasound and even x-ray CT, there's a lot of ceramic components in there. So that sort of let me sort of scratch that technical itch there. Um, and then, yeah, there was this opportunity where OSU had started. So I'd been at OSU for five years. CDME, the center I'm at, Center for Design and Manufacturing Excellence has been here for about seven. So they were just going through like a first sort of growth phase after having been around for uh, two, three years. And, um, and like I mentioned, my first manager, Nate Ames at EWI, the executive director at OSU, CDME. And um, well, they wanted to build out a totally sweet additive program at my alma mater. And they're like, hey, Ed, you love OSU, you love additive why don't you come build it at OSU? And I was like, oh my God, like, how do I say no? Yeah. I mean, GE is awesome. How do I say no to that? I got the football stadium behind me, dude. Like, right. come on. Like, <laughs> anyhow. And so what's the, what's the concept behind the CDME? What, how does it function in the university? And is it kind of academic focused? Obviously there's academic pieces, but like what's, how does it work? Kind of what? What's the? Where is it positioned within? Is it a department thing? Is it kind of multi-department? What's what's kind of the the one hundred and one on the CDMA? So, um, so we're a center in the College of Engineering. So, like if you look at the org chart, there's the dean of engineering, and then there's a couple like assistant deans or whatever that manage different parts of uh, engineering. So then we would be like, we're not a department. So there's like the departments, right? Are at the next level and then all the centers. So, so it's kind of like, kind of like a department with a specific mission, right? And we don't teach classes, um, but our mission is experiential education for undergraduates. So basically our, our driver in life is that, okay, you don't, you don't transition technology through licensing and invention and all this other stuff. I mean, people say you do, you don't. The way you, tra the way you transition technology, particularly from a university to a business, is through students, right? You have students, they're you know, super dynamic, enthusiastic young people, they learn a new technology, they come work for your business, then, then you really got something, right? So, so for us, so that's, that's number one, our product is the students. So then the, the corollary to that and, and what drives our mission is, well, you can't fake real. So, so they're already getting incredible internship experiences. They're doing research with the faculty. They're doing their senior capstone projects. All that stuff still exists. We're, we're, we're not replacing any of that, but we're augmenting it with, okay, if we want to have these students trained well to go transition into industry, you know, wh wherever it is, or start their own companies. Well, I want them to learn on industrially sized equipment. I want them to learn on real projects with real deadlines. I tell my students, it's like, you guys, this isn't like a class where like, like whatever, you, you get bored of the class or you don't like the professor, you mail it in, you get your gentlemanly B minus or whatever, gentlemanly yeah. B minus. Like, like these are real projects. Like we want the students to learn. It's like, these are deliverables. Like that doesn't mean stuff always works, but if it doesn't work, you need to go, you know, work with me, work with the staff to negotiate either an uh, extension of timeline or change the deliverables. Like you can't like, so this is the stuff we want the students graduating with. It's like they, they're graduating and they, they're hands-on with our add up form up 350. They're hands-on with our Trump true laser 3000. Right, they're hands-on with the M2 and the RCAM and the Econity, like so. They have those hands-on skills, 
and we're driving them into real projects, right? They're, 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 you know, I, we brought a couple of our students to the add up open house a few days ago. Like we're making sure the students are getting out. Like we brought a bunch of them to rapid so that they're, they're ready for professional practice. So that's our, and, and if you go look on our webpage, it's like, well, our mission is to, it's, it's this totally broad apple pie, but we mean it. It's advanced in manufacturing competitiveness of the United States, right? So part of that is a technology mission, right? And that's our 30 staff that are driving it, right? Myself, Jacob, Ben, some of the other people you've talked to. But then it's this huge cohort of students. Like we have 40 undergrads in the additive lab. We're trying to add more. We have 140 undergraduates in CDME and our mission is to go out and find more projects where like, okay, well, how do I double that? How do I get, how do I get 500 students through here? And, um, and, you know, all the while like grow the ecosystem, right? I've been in all these great companies working with great people. I have a huge passion for additive. It's like, okay, well, how can we be, I mean, we're land grant university in the state of Ohio. Like how can I work with the other universities? How can I work with, America makes, you know, how can I work with Jobs Ohio to drive this stuff? Like that's, that's what I really want. And along those lines, how do you companies fit into that? So are, are these research projects kind of company funded? Like what, what's usually the dynamic when, when you kind of play matchmaker to like say, Hey, we've got either a piece of technology we want to try it as kind of early, early beta versions we want to put in your facility? Like how do some of these types of projects, or maybe you can kind of pick one or two the, to highlight like collaboration between kind of the real, real world or real industry and, and how it kind of gets into a format that's uh, easily to digestible by a, an undergrad or kind of the team together. Mm-hmm. Well, um, right. So we want to do that. Tech, so, so, we want to do that technology transition. We're project-based organization. So for it to really stick, it's got to be a project. Sometimes that's government funded. We're probably about 50% government funded. Um, and sometimes that's company funded, depending on their priorities. Um, and then, I, you know, the projects that work really well tend to be kind of like where, you know, we have probably 20 or 25 different organizations where OSU is a key partner, right? They're, they're recruiting students, whether that's regional or whether that's because, you know, we just fit in terms of the strengths that OSU has and CDME has really fits their portfolio. Um, so, so there's a certain group of companies that are sort of coming to us, like what's your latest and greatest equipment or recipe or whatever. And then, um, and then we, we develop projects together. So um, yeah, I'm like, and, and, and look, I think the, the best partnerships, again, it all revolves around making sure we have students involved. So it's like we have full-time staff, students, depending on the technology, we'll go um, do teaming with faculty where we'll bring in faculty in particular areas of expertise. Um, in particular, like I have some great colleagues that do a lot of work on very advanced testing Um in mechanical engineering, we also have colleagues that are doing lots of really sophisticated modeling of some of these additive processes. Um, I'm trying to think of like, what's a good project that I can actually talk about and be like recorded talking about it, right? Sure. Um, so look, like we're doing a lot of uh, lattice design and development work. Um, so that was one, uh, we had a couple America Makes programs um, that ultimately are going to become sort of like seed ASTM standards. So um, we were working closely with Entopology, use their software in order to create the lattice structures, um, using the Concept Laser M2 to print the materials, and then collaborating with uh, Professor Jeremy Seit and Amos Galat, their lab. They have some really sophisticated uh, 3D digital image correlation um, to, to sort of identify where the lattices uh, are, are breaking. And then um, America Makes funded that. And we had a number of industry partners um, that were sort of telling us and guiding us. It's like, okay, if you're going to make lattices, these are the alloys that we care about lattices. Okay. And then we had aerospace people who were like, if you want to make lattices, this is the kind of lattice we actually care about. 
So it's so it's kind of that voice of the customer, voice of the industry. And that just makes everything better, right? Because then the students are actually learning like real topics. And then the the research is that much sort of uh, more impactful in terms of where it goes, right? Like we don't just want to publish a paper. We want something that somebody's going to go out and adopt. Yeah. And a shameless plug is, is we we got to see some of that data as part of our kind of trace software. So as a small company yeah. kind of building a software tool, we've been able to partner with, with you guys as early testers, get feedback on on how it works and, and partner with some of these industry partners to help, help a different piece of the bit. Maybe it's not lattice structure specifically, but then once you get it to transition, how do you communicate data packages? So for us, it was super helpful to, to get feedback and that connection point within not only the students, but other industrial partners, America makes obviously. Yeah. And then the, like the next generation stuff that I'm super psyched about is um, so we're working with um some different companies on different laser technologies now, right? So it's like, okay, how do you change the game? So it's one thing with the current laser technology, but then it's like, okay, how about a green laser? How about a dynamic focus laser now, right? Where you're not just using a Gaussian beam. So how much, so that, so that goes back to kind of your first question, how do you transition all this stuff? Well, it's like, okay, like there's a, like certainly certain machines are better for certain things than others. And there's a certain price point but like if we can qualify and drive step changes in productivity 10 or 100x right you ask a question about like okay if i'm an entrepreneur how can i afford to like capitalize a piece of equipment well what if your piece of equipment is 100x more productive i mean you take the cost out that opens up the whole landscape so that goes back to yeah like what what you guys are doing with the quality system stuff right so so it's not good enough just to make it you have to know what you made if you're in a regulated industry. For sure. So as we kind of wind down the conversation here, I mean, you've, you've kind of had this awesome career seeing, seeing additive in different states, big companies, small companies, academia. What are you excited about? I mean, you kind of mentioned the, the laser stuff, but like from an industry perspective, like, and where you sit, kind of what, do, what are you excited about for the, the coming year or kind of years in terms of added manufacturing and, and even kind of people who are thinking about, Hey, like, is this technology going to be around? Is this kind of a flash in the pan type of thing? Like what are some of the things that as someone has experienced as yourself in the technology and seeing the trends and kind of seeing, seeing where it's going? What, what would you advise as kind of like, Hey, this is, this is going to be a thing that sticks around. And, and this is a big reason why. I'm super bullish on the technology. Well, you know, it's just going to get more ubiquitous. I mean, that that's the thing. Again, like thinking back, um, you know, where there just were all these questions about quality stuff. And now it just feels like we sort of answered a lot of those questions. I think my prediction is, um, oh, I remember uh, one anecdote. It was one of the first things I did when I was at uh, RP Plus M. I'll never forget, uh, I did this panel. It was like this supply chain XM bank panel. And I had one of the, like the president of the company was with me. Um, and um, I was doing this panel and we had a, a whole bunch of like senior folks. There was like uh, EOS and um, GE and a few people on this panel. It was like, somebody asked a question, how big is this industry going to be? This was in 2013. And um, like nobody wanted to step up to bat and like say anything. I was like, well, and 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 this former colleague of mine still gives me a hard time about this. It was like, I, I just go, I go, well, like casting is a $120 billion industry. Additive is going to be at least 10 or 20% of that. It's going to be like $20 billion in like the next 10 years. And you would have thought like, I, I was like, I didn't think it was that controversial. Everybody's like, whoa, because like, you know, looking back, it all makes sense, right? But like you stack a, 20% Kager on like an $800 million, billion dollar industry over 10 years. Like that's a lot of growth. And so like, for me now, where I get excited is like some of this technology stuff that's been incubating for a long time is going to come to fruition. Like we're going to have mass produce like million part, million part number parts in metal using binder jetting for automotive. That's going to happen in the next five years. I have no doubt in my mind. Like we're going to have 10 to 100x speed 
metal laser powder bed fusion in certain alloy systems in the next five years. I have no doubt. There's too many smart people working on it. And, and, and then you have the, this whole thing like the exact metal guys where they're, they're selling a machine for 60 grand. So then, then you have this whole other end of the market that never existed before for the tool and die shops. So now it's just that much more democratized. Like that's coming. Like there's no doubt. So if those things are coming, you know, we just across the street um, and we're going to be writing this up later on in the summer. OSU has a big partnership um, with Engi and Siemens Energy. We just installed two new Siemens SGT 700 combined heat and power gas turbines. Um, the way that you get to burning renewable hydrogen is with additive. You can't do it any other way. So, so literally the, the getting off fossil fuels to clean energy transition not, is going to be like is enabled today through metal printing. And then you go to that corollary. If I make it a hundred times faster, how much more impact can I make? And then you just go down like all the jet engine stuff. Like there are people out there, like, like there will be jet engines that are going to be everything, but the turbine blades are going to be 3d printed. Like it's coming, maybe the discs. So, so like the disc, the shaft, the blades, those are going to be cast and forged. Everything else is going to be 3d printed. Right. Like that's going to happen. That will happen. That's probably going to be 10 years because aerospace takes too long. But like, but like, look at the space stuff. Look at what these guys are doing on these small rockets. It's freaking incredible. Yeah. And then I haven't even talked about like all the healthcare stuff. Like that's, that's, that's not coming. Like I don't, people don't necessarily realize what's out there. Like we're doing a lot of work. Uh, my colleague, Kyle Vancouvering, who's a head and neck surgeon and the, uh, OSU James Cancer Center, like the level of impact, like they're saving hours of operating room time with polymer planning models that we're printing today with like materialized and stratasys commercial off the shelf equipment. And then you forecast that into the future of um, taking the cost out, making it more ubiquitous, working with the supply chain to do the TIE 6-4 printed implants which they're already doing some of today, but like that's, that's in its infancy. Like, again, it's one of these things where like it's happening enough that I know it's going to be ubiquitous. We take out 90% of the cost. Like that's going to change healthcare. That's going to change orthopedic surgery. That's going to change reconstruction after cancer. And it's going to be, it's literally going to be higher performance, better patient outcomes, and we're going to make it cheaper. Like, dude, that's freaking incredible. That's going to happen. There's no doubt. Like, I've seen enough of it. It's not just like evangelizing. Like, that's coming. Absolutely. And it's coming fast. For sure. No, it's exciting. So um, exciting to keep see what you guys keep doing there and, um, and all the great programs and students that you have kind of coming into the industry as well. So it's it's awesome work. And Appreciate what you guys are, are doing and, and how you're contributing to the industry. So appreciate the time today. Yeah. Really enjoyed talking to you, Mike. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. See you soon. All right. Take care.